Or, oh, he can't, he's in a meeting. Or, uh, she's not home right now. Or, uh, no, that outfit does not make you look fat. <laughs> or, not tonight, I have a headache. Or, uh, the rat we killed was this big. Or the fish I caught was this big, right? But today's message, we're talking about honesty, and we've been working through the characteristics that Jesus displayed as what a mature Christ follower might look like. And the Bible has a lot of things to say about honesty. Um, we are, it's one of the Ten Commandments, bear false witness. Proverbs talk about it, uh, the great criticism of Israel that God has, um, that Paul writes it, about it often in his letters, and Jesus has something to say about it as well. But here's what we know. We know that we are not meant to lie, that God did not create us to be liars. That is not the plan. And we know how it feels to be lied to. When the story broke of Lance Armstrong using performance enhancement drugs to win the Tour de France, we were all devastated because he was a role model. We looked up to him. When Michigan State, when it came out, the Michigan State had been covering up and lying about sexual misconduct in the university. We all were enraged. Enraged. Many of you in this room today have experienced being lied to by a loved one, by a spouse, a parent, your kids. Kids in this room, you've been caught in lies. You've been lied to by friends. We know how it feels to be lied to, and it's a horrible, horrible feeling. With our kids, what, lying is one of the things, the number one thing in our house you will get in trouble for the most. I don't know if you feel the same, but if I can't trust you, we are not going to have a good relationship. So from the time they were very little, before they could speak, um, when they started speaking, lying is a big deal. Um, if you know my children, we have Aiden and Mia. Aiden's in uh, seventh grade, Mia's in fifth grade. Uh, Mia is our creative, uh, creative child. Uh, we often joke she lives in a world of gray, right? So if you don't say no, then it's a yes, you know? So we never quite really, she always surprises us. Aiden lives in the world of black and white. But like, it is very clear to him the, the, how things are. We were in the car one time, and I think Mia was three and he was five. I mean, she was old enough to talk, and she was talking about she was swimming, and she was in the pool, and she was a mermaid. And it was so great because she's swimming, her tail was splashing, and Aiden goes, liar, you lie, you are not a mermaid, you are not a mermaid. And we're like, oh my gosh, you know, she's just three, she's just playing. But he was, he was like, that is not a lie, and he's our firstborn, so... Firstborns tend to get a little, we're a little overzealous, I think, in some of our training. So, sorry, Aiden, for some of that. <laughs> but the truth is, lying is a terrible thing. And the reason it is, because lying always breaks relationship. It always destroys covenant. And it always separates us from God and from other people. So this whole series is entitled Trending, and we've been saying each and every week, Paul writes in Colossians, he says, the purpose of, of, of doing this, of looking at it, is that we are to proclaim Christ with our lives so that we can present everyone fully mature in Christ. Uh, maturity is evidenced in a person um, through their humility, 
through their avail- availability, their selflessness, uh, non-judgmental, their honesty, and their love. Christ displayed that. So today, we are looking at honesty. And there was a study that was done by Robert Feldman that said, in a 10-minute conversation, there are approximately 3.3 lies. Now, that may seem excessive. That's like one lie every three minutes. And you might be thinking, I don't lie that often. Well, you either are lying or you're being lied to, according to the study, once, one, at least one time every three minutes. But we, but we lie, and, and, and we lie to our spouses. We lie to our children. Hey, if you eat that candy too much, that sweet tooth, the one right back there, it's going to fall out, right? Tell me true. If you lie too much, your nose is going to grow, right? Um, we lie to our bosses, our taxes, our motives, why we're late, why we didn't return that email, why we didn't answer the phone. Oh, I was busy. The truth is I just didn't want to talk to you. Um, we lie at the doctor's office. We lie at the dentist. That's probably one of the biggest lies. You've been flossing every day? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> Americans, we steal cable, TV. We pirate music that we don't pay for. We, uh, there's crazy uh, fraud in the auto repair industry. Uh, we pad our resumes. We lie to impress people at church. Um, we uh, lie about how much we lie. Uh, we exaggerate for effect. I do that a lot. Like, I was like 157 minutes late. That's not true. Not true. Um, we've uh, inflated numbers. We've deflated numbers to feel better. Um, we've given our spouse or our parents a different version of the story. We've withheld information when we should have spoken up. We've been a silent partner when a friend has been lying, and we've allowed it to happen. We are cheating and lying more and more, and it is getting easier and easier, and we are feeling less and less bad about it. So why do we lie? Why do we do this? Well, first of all, we do it out of fear, right? What will happen if I tell the truth? Will I hurt someone's feelings, or will I get in trouble? We lie it... Um, out of selfishness, desire for personal gain. I want to get what I want. If I I don't lie, then I won't get what I want. So I'm going to lie because in the end, it's all about me and my needs and what I want. So you used to to think that lying began when you could first speak. But we've learned more about human development, and we've learned that Actually, lying begins even before you can speak. Because if you ever watched a baby who can cry, they can manipulate their caretaker and cry like a fake cry to kind of get what they want, right? Um, but kids are the worst liars. You know, they, they lie, and then we have to teach them not to lie. But, but they're terrible at it. So I was looking for a video that would display uh, a trending video that, was, that got a lot of hits about kids getting caught lying. And this is one that I found. Watch this. John, what are you eating? Nothing. You didn't eat anything. Yeah. Nothing. John, look at mommy. Are you telling me the truth? That. You didn't have any snacks? Nope. Let me see. You didn't have any snacks. Hold on, let me see. Really? You didn't have any snacks? Yeah. 
Gosh, he is committed to that lie. He is like, no, I did not. He's seeing back him up. Did you notice his physical reaction? He couldn't look her in the eye. He, uh, he, he's terrible, terrible at lying. He's completely unaware that he's got it on his face and he's covering it up with how he's not looking and how he's backing up. But we can often tell people are lying by their physical response. I mean, you know people in your life who are terrible at lying, right? And you know people who are really good at it. So there are, um, lying actually involves our whole body. We have a, a physical response to it. Our, as we saw with the little boy, our eyes look a certain way. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a TV show called Lie to Me. Anyone see that? <clears throat> kind of taught you what to look for to see if someone was lying, how they would look or their body with certain twitches and stuff. Um, super cool. But there's also a neurological response that happens inside of our bodies when we lie. So I think God put that in there because we're not designed to do this. So the lie detector machine was made. You can hook someone up and um, detect if someone is telling a lie because of heart rate or pulse or whatever. I don't even totally know how that works, but I know that it's because of stuff that's going on inside. <clears throat> but um, there was a, uh, a study done by the neurological, the Nature Neuroscience Journal. And uh, so they did a study to find out uh, about white lies and the slippery slope of lies. And so the study asked participants to help their partner estimate how many pennies were in a jar. And uh, some of the people told were told that they would be paid more money if their partner would overestimate the amount. And some people were told that their partner would be paid more if they overestimated. And some people were told that they would both be paid more. And what the study found was that when there was um, no consequence for the lie, when they had nothing to lose, they always lied. They increased the boldness of their lies each time, and their brain activity responded less and less. They had less of an emotional response the more deep they got into the lies. So in other words, the more we lie, the easier it is to keep lying. This idea of a little white lie is not true. It is a dangerous, dangerous, slippery slope. Dangerous. And it's not the design for our lives. It's not how we were created to be because lying always breaks relationship, always destroys covenant. It always separates us from God and humanity. And God knows our lies Denying our lies to God is like being a little kid with sprinkles on our face. It's ridiculous. 
Because he knows and he sees it. And he said, God said, I want to reconcile you back to me. I want a good relationship with you. And so in order to do that, he sent Jesus. And Jesus showed us how to do this. So Jesus had some things to say about lying. Um, he addresses the issue of lying in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and he speaks about oath, oaths. So um, we'll go there now. It's in Matthew 5, <clears throat> 33 through 37. He says this. He said, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill, fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So let's look at this in context. Who is Jesus speaking to? He says, um, again, you. He is speaking to the Pharisees, the devout Jews of his time. And um, he, he knows them. He knows they are all about keeping the law. They are really, really into legalism. Right? So he's saying, I know that you've been told this right here. He said, I, I know you've been told, don't break your oath, fulfill to the Lord. And, and, and so Jesus goes further. He said, but um, I'm going to take it a step further. Don't make any oaths. And I want to clarify here real quick. He talks, um, he says, by heaven or um, by God, uh, Jerusalem or by your head. And what, what he's doing, in that time, a uh, righteous Jew would not use the name God. They would use the name, they would say Jerusalem or I swear by heaven because to use the name of God was disrespectful. So Jesus is kind of covering it all because they would say, well, I'm not swearing by God. Well, I'll just swear by heaven or I'll swear by Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus is all about destroying checklist Christianity, right? He's all about getting to the real here. So he's, he's, uh, he's cutting out any type of loopholes that there might be. Um, oaths were used in, in that day as they are today. It was uh, first mentioned in, in Deuteronomy. They were uh, created for the courtroom, um, just like today, they, uh, to, to help swear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God in order to keep justice in place, in order to, to have a consequence for someone lying, they needed to establish the oath because uh, they needed to have at least some place where they knew someone was telling the truth. And oaths would go beyond the courtroom. Um, it would also be in the marketplace. I swear, uh, I'm on God, so I swear by heaven that this cow is healthy. You can buy this cow from me. I swear it is healthy. Um, or this product, I swear in my life, what I'm saying is true. Oaths were necessary in order to just get someone to believe what you're saying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the very existence of oaths is proof that there are such things as lies. If you think about it, the very fact that we have to say, I swear or I promise, goes to admit that there are times when you don't have to believe what I'm saying. How often do you use that? I swear, I promise, listen to me, please, trust me, trust me. So, you know, when I, when I say I swear, I'm trying to convince you of my truthfulness. I need you to believe me. Can you fill in this blank? Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. That's just terrible. 
<laughs> Why did we ever come up with that? But we all know it. We all know it. But the old law simply says, um, here's a checklist, and they would say, great, I, I, I can take an oath and I can be honest, but Jesus switches it around, right? And that's what he does. And he says, um, no longer is it your oaths, but I want your, don't, don't, don't swear by heaven anymore. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees was that they were so concerned with the old law that they were making it about legalism. Like, if I do these things, then I'm a righteous person, and Jesus knows better, and he said, you're doing those things, and you're not righteous because your heart is still hard. So Jesus says the old law leads to legalism. This new law leads to life. A new life in the kingdom of God where everyone is valued, where we don't need oaths, where you can trust what I say because it's plain and simple. My yes is yes and my no is no, and I don't exaggerate, and you can trust my words. That's what Jesus did because he knows that lying always breaks relationship. It always destroys covenant, and it always separates us from God and from humanity. You know, we need to die to ourselves in order to live this out. We need to die to our fears and our insecurities of not getting our own way. In this kingdom, we choose to love. John Ortberg said this. He said, you can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but you cannot love somebody without telling them the truth. You can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but you cannot love somebody without telling them the truth. Now, I think probably in this room, I'm going to, I believe the majority of you want to be truthful people. You want to people, be people who trend honesty. You want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. And, 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 um, and maybe, um, this is, this is kind of making you kind of nervous, maybe you're in the middle of some deceit or you're in the middle of a lie, or you've, you're trying to figure out some real deep hurts on that. Um, and so there's hope, and, and we're going to get there in just a minute. But I would like you to practice something. Um, go a day without lying. Like, go a whole day without lying. Wake up in the morning, I'm, I'm not, not, not going to lie. And every time you're, you're tempted to bend the truth or stretch it or inflate it, stop yourself, think about another way to phrase it. And when you do that, you'll then begin to notice how often other people lie and inflate the truth. It's really, really interesting practice here. But the commitment to be a truthful person, to say, um, hey, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I am going to predecide. I am not going to lie. And that's okay to have a good heart to want to do that. But if you don't practice it in the small things, the big things are really hard. When it really counts, when your word is on the line, when you've practiced it, when you've, your yes has been yes all along, then it makes it a much easier thing for you to tell the truth in those moments. So um, in case you're feeling a little nervous right now, um, the Bible's full of liars, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, Cain, Sarah, Moses, Samson, Ananias and Sapphira, Judas. I mean, there are so many liars in the Bible, so you are in really good company. But one of the most notable liars was Peter. And this story just is, it's just a great story 
of, of this about hope. And so I want to start here for a minute. Um, Matthew 26, and this is where Jesus is telling his disciples that they are all going to leave him when he is handed over to die, right? And Peter says, even if, all, if they all fall away on your, I, I, I never will. And I think Peter was sincere. I think P- Peter really believed this, right? And, and Jesus says, oh, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declares, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So they may leave you, but I never will. I never will. I would rather die than, than disown you because Jesus is his best friend, right? And Jesus already told him, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you, right? So they've got this great, beautiful friendship. He's one of his best friends. But the story continues, and a lot of you have heard this story before. But we go on. It says, now Peter, so Jesus is taken away. They have all left him, taken away. Peter's following at a safe distance, and he's in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. She says, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. She said, but he denied it before them all. He said, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. See, the first time he's called by the servant girl, he denies it. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. So he denies it. Okay, first I want to I say he's, he's um, out in the courtyard. So he is separated from Jesus. I'm sorry, the lines got... Messed up. Those are supposed to be under it. Supposed to underline out in the courtyard, not strike it out. These are the things I want you to look at. So he's sitting out in the courtyard. So he's physically separated from Jesus, right? Um, he denies it, and he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I think maybe in Peter's, Peter's mind, this is the first little white lie, because he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, when was I with him? What time are you talking about? Well, I don't know, right? He's thinking justifying it maybe in his head. He's not totally denying him yet, maybe. Maybe, here. But this is the first step, right, that we talked about, that first slippery slope, that one lie, and the next lies here get a little stronger and stronger. Here's my question. How did Peter go from ready to die to ready to lie? I mean, what happened in him that made the change? See, he had made the decision ahead of time. He said, Jesus, even if everyone goes away, if I have to die, I will never leave you. But something happened in his soul where he changed his mind. And he chose the lie over dying. Again, it's those little things, those small steps that help train us up. What is it this week that you could do that would start that process for you? Uh, John and I have a, a good friend. His name is Joel. You'll hear us talk about Joel often. Um, he's on the left. And um, that, he's my running buddy. We ran a marathon together. Um, but Joel, when he was, gave his life over to Christ, he was 19 years old. And one of the things he decided early on is that he was not going to be a liar. He was going to be very truthful in all that he said and, did, and would say and do. And one of the things he, one of the funniest lies that he refused to tell was he just didn't think newborn babies were cute. He just didn't, and he would say, I just think they're ugly, until he had his own, but he just really, he just didn't think they were really cute, and so instead of saying, oh, your baby's so cute, he would say, oh, would you look at you, 
Would you look at you? Oh. <laughs> that's terrible. <gasps> I think that's like a Mr. Bean baby. I don't even know. It's hard to pick an ugly baby photo because it's someone's baby. I actually think newborn babies are cute. That's the truth. Um, but thinking about the, the, the stories that you tell or the things that you do that um, are just come naturally for us to lie and deceive, and we don't even see it like that, but if we could take in action those little small steps, what could happen in, when the stakes are high? So Jesus predict, predicted that Peter would deny him three times. So here's the second time. He says, then they went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Okay, so again, he's now he's further. It says now he went out into the gateway. So he's now physically further away and he denies again and this time with the oath, he needs them to believe her. I swear, I don't know who the man, now Jesus doesn't even have a name. He's taken away the identity. Makes it easier to lie if we don't have a respect or place value on the person that we are lying about or for, right? So he says, I don't even know the man. And then he goes on to say, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives it away. Then he began to call down curses. He swore to them, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. He's calling down curses. When we lie, we don't become atheists. We just change altars. Peter says, I swear, I swear I don't know him. He's cursing. There are even some places it says he's even like cursing Jesus himself. I swear on the Bible, I swear on my life, I don't know this man, I don't know who he is, leave me alone. Who are you? I don't even care who he is. Right? He is so deep in it. He has um, one God at this point, and it is himself, and he is looking out for number one. And we don't become atheists. We just change who we put on the altar. And then immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He was as far away physically as possible from Jesus. He is completely separated from Jesus. He is caught in his lie. That rooster crowed, and he knew he was busted. And he realized what he had done, and he wept bitterly. It was Peter. He was the one who was supposed to to start the church. At this moment, imagine how he felt. He had totally failed. He had totally failed. And he was a broken, sobbing mess. Oh, but then we learn, we learn soon that it doesn't end there. See, here's the hope in this whole thing. At the lowest moment for Peter, at the moment where he thought he had lost it all, his Lord that he proclaimed was about to die on a cross, he had totally disowned him, left him to die. There will be hope for this. Because if you remember, we read in Mark 
after the stone is rolled away and Mary goes to the tomb and sees the angel, the angel says what? He says, uh, go and tell the disciples and Peter. See, he wasn't finished with Peter. Isn't that good news? The worst lie, the biggest deceit, the, 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 he bailed on his best friend. And God says, I'm not done with you. I forgive you. The thing that Jesus did on the cross, that's for you. For that lie, for that sin, for the deceit in your life. It's like, I got you. I got plans for you. And you know what happened? You know what happened after that? They're in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, which by the way will be, we celebrate that in the church in May. And the, the Holy Spirit came in that upper room and he filled, filled that space and, and people were able to speak in tongues and people in other languages and they left. And Peter is the one who preached the very first sermon and 3,000 people came to know Christ and the church started. See, that's what Jesus can do. That's what the gospel is all about. That in the midst of our deceit and our falling away and our messing up, Jesus is there and he says, I love you and I forgive you and I'm with you. So it doesn't matter what you've done or what you're in. If you're stuck in the midst of a lie or something, Jesus wants you to own it. He wants to work with you through it. He'll give you the, the courage and the boldness you need to live into that and to make it right. And we know that that is the plan that God has for us. does not have a plan for us to be separated and broken relationships. This whole thing is about restoring right relationship with God and each other. And so we'll have some time to do that today. You know, one of the things we do in the church is we participate in communion. And communion is our way to experience God's grace. It's an outward sign of an invisible grace that God gives us in our lives. See, God's grace is poured out for each and every one of us for the forgiveness of our sins, for all of our sins. It's God's grace that we need to live, and it's only by his grace that we are saved. And we remember what Jesus did on that cross and his experience that he had at the Last Supper. See, when Jesus was in the upper room, he was with his disciples and this was before the betrayal, but Jesus knew this was going to happen, and he was still able to do this with his friends. It says that on the night he was handed over for suffering and death, our Lord Jesus, when he, had, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he raised it. And he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup of wine, and we had, had given thanks. He gave it to them, and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And we come together as, as the church to continue in this, to say we also need God's grace in our lives. So let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Father of all humanity, we approach this table in humility, gratitude, and anticipation. We are humbled 
by the consciousness of our shortcomings and the love which prompted the suffering of our Lord. To give us new and unending life with you, we are grateful for all that is symbolized in this communion of the Lord's Supper. We are grateful for his sacrifice on our behalf and the assurance of the forgiveness of sin, which this communion celebration is a reminder. We anticipate a renewal of faith, courage, love, and devotion as we share in this experience. I ask that you touch each and every one of our hearts and pour out your grace over us. And now this morning, we join together and pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, for us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, those who are helping to serve communion, to come forward this morning. And as you come forward to receive these gifts of grace, I, I want you to know that we serve an open table here at Hope Covenant. You don't have to be a member of this church um, to come and receive communion. All are welcome to join in at this table. It doesn't matter if you belong to any church. We believe that God's grace is freely given to all. There'll be several stations around the room. We'll have three up front and one in the back corner. You'll come forward, receive the bread and the cup, take that, receive it, and then go back to your seat. All we ask is that as you come forward, do so with an open heart, an open mind, open to receive God's grace in your lives. Use this time as a chance to talk with God. This is a chance for you to do business with God. Work through whatever it is that might be going on in your lives. But what we need is time to just be honest. Honest with God, honest with ourselves. Pray for the strength to tell the truth, to be honest with God and yourselves. So now come.